You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Lord, we are very grateful that we have the technology and the ability to do this, and it is a blessing even being able to meet online in this way. This is not optimum, but we know that you know that um, you know our needs, and you know what we are here for, and you know what we're trying to accomplish, even by by canceling church for the next couple of weeks. And it's our desire that even as we gather together here and and uh, look at your word and understand things from your word, that you would be glorified through our time and our study. And thank you for the questions that have been submitted, and pray that you give me clarity and in giving clear answers and um, help it to be clearly articulated and understandable and that our time here together may be used by you to edify us and equip us and encourage us in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I got a couple of... Um, now, um, oh, what is my favorite fictional book? All right. We got we got uh, questions coming into the live stream already, so I'm going to hold off on those and I'm going to have Peter collate some of those for us later on. Let's start with something a little lighthearted. Um, Rainy Aarons asked this question, what does without wax mean? Because I put that on my email correspondence, uh, you know, the emails that I send out, as well as my written correspondence, any letters that I send out to people, I have without wax as the signature line. And uh, so I get asked this a couple times a year, actually, and I had this in a, I gave an explanation of this in a Random Thoughts article in our newsletter a while back. Here's the explanation of it. Um, back in ancient times when, when, um, merchants would sell pottery in the marketplaces, um, pottery that had been fired, that had no cracks in it at all was considered, uh, premium pottery. It was, uh, worth the high dollar value. Uh, unscrupulous, uh, merchants would, would take pottery that had been fired and had cracks in it and they would fill the cracks in with wax. And then they would paint over top of it and make it look as if it had no cracks or no defects. And then they would sell that as if it were, um, as if it were high, high value pottery. So the way you could tell if you were in the marketplace, the way you could tell if something was, uh, the real McCoy was, was genuine or not was to hold it up to the light and the light would shine through the wax, but not through the pottery. So you could take uh, a vase or a bowl or a plate or something and hold it up to the sun. The light would shine through and you could see where the merchant had filled in the cracks with wax. So merchants would, uh, in order to avoid being suspected for being, um, um, unscrupulous, they would mark their pottery as sine serre, which meant was Latin for without wax, which meant that uh, if you held it up to the sun, you would see that there was no cracks, there was no, nothing filled in, there was nothing hidden from the site that the light would reveal. And uh, so uh, the, the genuine merchants who really wanted to sell good pottery would mark their pottery as sine serre, without wax, meaning that if you held it up to the light, you, what you saw was what you get. They weren't covering over or hiding any defects. And so seri is the word from which we get our word sincerely, which means genuine or true. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of another way of saying sincerely, but without wax carries the idea that what you see is what you get. There's no, there's no defects being hidden here that if you held it up to light, you wouldn't see, um, you wouldn't see cracks. So that's where it comes from. That's where sincerely comes from. Seri, at least according to the story. And I like the story. And so I use the signature line without wax, meaning it's sincere or genuine or true. Um, there's nothing hidden, there's nothing uh, masked over and uh, sold as if it's something it's not. So that's where without wax comes from. All right, another question. Sarah Joy asked, 
Um, I would love to hear a recap of the essential core doctrines or the doctrines that all true Christians must agree on as opposed to the areas we would disagree and still be saved and have fellowship. So um, what I would do here is pull up a, an excursus on the essentials. This we include with our membership class, and um, this is something that we kind of go over when we are in membership class and, and cover the essentials of the, of the faith there. And I'm just going to review these. And what what she asked was for a, um, what'd she say, a recap of the essential core doctrines. So I'm going to give something of a brief recap of those essential core doctrines here. Anything, basically, we talk about primary issues uh, in theological terms. We have primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, and tertiary doctrines, or third-level doctrines. The third-level doctrines would be doctrines or beliefs that um, are, are not as important or fundamental um, to the faith. They, they really have no importance at all. Christians can disagree on some of those things that are really, um, they're so far away from the core essentials that they're, they're almost, they're almost meaningless. Secondary issues would be ones that are connected to primary issues. Um, then they're not salvific issues. You can disagree on whether you baptize babies, for instance. Um, you can disagree on the timing of the tribulation or whether or not there is a millennium. Those would be secondary issues, though they're all important issues. And the primary issues would be the issues that we would say, if you have, if you disagree on these issues, uh, this strikes at the very heart of whether or not you really are truly a Christian. So those would be the primary doctrines of the faith. So those doctrines would be doctrines that relate to the person of God, the nature of God, and obviously connected to that would be the person of Christ, since he is the second person of the Trinity. So we're talking about doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture, and the doctrine of salvation. If you believe something wrong about salvation, you're believing something that will inevitably damn you. So... Primary doctrines, we would list the Godhead and included in the Godhead as a, as a primary or fundamental doctrine would be the doctrine of the Trinity, rightly understood that God is uh, one being, one God in three separate and distinct persons, that those three persons coexist, they are co-eternal, they are co-equal in value and in, um, in, in eternity and in power and authority. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are the three persons. So one God, three separate and distinct persons, not three gods, that's tritheism. And, of course, by the doctrine of Trinity, we don't mean any kind of Sabellianism or modalism, the idea that there's one God and one person who manifests or uh, displays himself in three separate and distinct modes, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that we have three separate and distinct distinct persons within the one being that is God. And each of those three separate and distinct persons shares fully the divine essence. So you don't need to get the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in the room and have to, in order to have all that is God. You can have the Son in the room with you and have all that is God. And I'm speaking here, I'm describing it here in, in terms that would help sort of explain the doctrine of the Trinity, but these terms are not necessarily um, theologically accurate because you could never have all that is God without having the Father and the Spirit. But for the sake of discussion, to, to illustrate the difference between modalism and biblical Trinitarianism, I'm describing it this way. You don't need to have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this room in order to have all that is God. If you had any one person, you would have all that is the being of God in that one person. So that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each by themselves possesses fully all of the divine nature. Um, so that would be biblical Trinitarianism, the doctrine of God. Now, obviously connected to that is the doctrine of Christ, because he is the second person of the Trinity, which means that we have to get the doctrine of who Christ is. They believe that he is fully God, that he is separate and distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
that he was born of a virgin. We include, and this is the second heading that we include as essential doctrines, the virgin birth of Christ. Without the virgin birth of Christ, you have some sort of one of the early church heresies regarding the person of Christ, either that he's two separate and distinct um, natures, or sorry, two separate and distinct spirits or or uh, personalities inside of one being, like a split personality disorder, or you would have to concede without the virgin birth, you'd have to concede that he is in some way conceived naturally and thus has some sort of an in inherent sinful nature. So the virgin birth, which would be the sinlessness of Jesus Christ incorporated with that. So that's all sort of subsumed under the doctrine of God. Another major doctrine would be bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in a literal bodily resurrection from the grave, not uh, not any kind of a spiritual resurrection or a revivification or something like that. Uh, another essential would be the vicarious and atoning death of Jesus Christ, meaning that he actually paid the price for sin in his death on the cross. He atoned for uh, or paid the price and expiated the sins of his people through his death on the cross, and that it was a substitutionary death that actually paid the penalty of divine wrath. Um, the emergent church movement uh, kind of denied that doctrine years ago as they began to question whether or not, um, or they began to say that the, the idea of, ex, of, a, of a substitutionary atonement was akin to divine child abuse, that God would whip his son for our, our sake, uh, this was child abuse, and imagine me beating one of my children for a sin that you committed. That's how they tried to. That's how they tried to sort of um, posture that belief of vicarious substitutionary atonement. So, uh, wrapped up in in the doctrine of the atonement is the belief that Christ, being fully God and fully man, paid the divine price, met the divine demand of justice on our behalf. So, the vicarious atoning death of Christ. Uh, the second coming of Christ, I think, is a non-essential. You can't deny that without denying um, in some form uh, the doctrine of the Trinity or, I think, really God's uh, plan for the future. So there's, we believe in the second coming of Christ. Now, that breaks down, I think, immediately into secondary issues, whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, rapture, uh, or any one of those various different sort of end-time scenarios, uh, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul can disagree on whether there will be a millennium or the timing of that millennium or the nature of a rapture or the nature of end-time events. Those would be secondary issues. They're important issues, but they're not. you can disagree about the nature of the millennium without being a heretic, without denying an essential of the faith. And then uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's another essential. If you deny that and add works or baptism or Sabbath keeping or tithing or church attendance or human human merit in any way into that equation, then you are denying an essential of the faith. And this, of course, would get to the heart of the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Uh, Protestantism, though they would agree with the doctrine of the Trinity, the virgin birth of Jesus, obviously the bodily resurrection from the grave, um, uh, uh, in some way, an atoning death of Jesus, though they don't believe that his death is entirely sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, they would believe in some form of a second coming, but they would deny this essential. Um, not every Roman Catholic would deny this, but Roman Catholicism and the Roman Catholic Church certainly does. Uh, they deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that, of course, is the heart of the Reformation doctrines of um, that separates Protestantism from Roman Catholicism. They deny those. They don't deny that salvation is by grace. They just deny that it's by grace alone. 
And they don't deny that it's by faith. They just deny that it is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And then the last essential, I think, um, that we have on our excursus in our membership class is the belief in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Old New Testaments and the er er inerrancy of the original autographs. Um, these, I think, are essential, non-negotiable, non-deniables. Um, and somebody just said Roman Catholic lifts up idols as well. That's absolutely true. That was chat. See how I'm, I'm doing this now? I'm watching the chat channel. I'm looking at the membership excursus, and I'm talking to you at home, sitting there in your underwear or your pajamas. All right, so that is uh answer to Sarah Joy's question. Um, then we have some tough ones. This one comes in from the first to third Sunday school class from Jenny. She did. Oh, you know what we should maybe do? Let me see, um, no, I'll, I'll return to that in just a moment. Um, she asks, why did David's, why did David lament Saul's death in second Samuel, but then write Psalms calling for the judgment and destruction of his enemies? How does this apply to how we should treat our enemies? Two questions there. Let's deal with the first one. Why did David lament Saul's death in 2 Samuel, but then write Psalms calling for the judgment and destruction of his enemies? And uh, this is a bit of a tougher question because it, it gets to the heart of imprecatory prayers and and imprecatory psalms. If you read through the psalms, I did this. I did a series on imprecatory psalms some years ago in adult Sunday school class. If you read through the Psalms, I think it is fully one half, if memory serves, it might be a little bit more, but fully one half of the Psalms contains some sort of imprecatory element. That is an, an announcement. It either was an announcement of God's destruction on Israel's enemies or God's enemies or David's enemies, or it was a desire of that destruction or a description of that destruction or a prayer for the destruction or the judgment and the justice of God. Uh, a lot of the Psalms have those imprecatory elements. And so one of the questions that comes up when you study the imprecatory Psalms is, um, oh, well, to give you an example of the imprecatory Psalm, Psalm 73 that I wrote the book on, The Prosperity of the Wicked, at the end of that, he talks about the, the wicked being lifted up just for the sake of God, destroying them, making their judgment even more severe, that God puts them in that position, that wealth is a, is a, is a method or a way of God's judgment. That's an imprecatory element um, in that Psalm. So a lot of the Psalms have that element, that imprecatory element. And one of the questions that comes up is how do, how do we deal with that? Or, or should we be praying imprecatory Psalms today? Should we be announcing God's judgment like that today and desiring the judgment of God uh, on his enemies today? I think that there is a sense in which all the righteous do desire to see God's justice vindicated and his name vindicated there should be a, there should be something in the heart of every redeemed person that says yes i'm tired of seeing sin and i want to see i want to see those who commit sin judged and the and god's name and his righteousness and his kingdom come and vindicated and by the way even the prayer of thy kingdom come thy will be done that's an imprecatory prayer when you pray for the kingdom of god to come or for christ to return do you understand what that prayer means when you pray lord jesus come quickly or uh, return. Do you understand what the return of Jesus Christ here is going to mean? It is going to mean the end of the day of grace. It will mean the destruction of the nations, the judgment of the goats, the judgment of the wicked, consigning them to um, their place in damnation, and the establishment of His kingdom. That is going to be a. a um, it's going to be a, a judgment on the world. So even that prayer is an imprecatory prayer. So there should be something in the heart of the righteous that says. Uh, I do desire the vindication of God's justice, 
and I do desire that God's uh, name would be made great and that Christ would come and that evil would stop. And sometimes the stopping of that evil requires the judgment of evildoers in Scripture. So David would pray for the destruction on his his enemies. And in the series, and I don't want to get into this right now, but in the series on the imprecatory Psalms, I made the case that David was in a unique position to pray for God's judgment on his own personal enemies since the establishment of God's kingdom revolved around, in the Davidic covenant sense, revolved around David and the the continuance of his throne and the prosperity of his descendants. The fulfillment of God's covenant to David required the judgment on David's enemies. And so David, unlike you and I, David can pray for the destruction of his enemies because in some sense, the destruction of David's enemies was the destruction of God's enemies. And so he could be, he could be vindicated for praying that or desiring that, um, because he was actually desiring the establishment and the fulfillment of God's personal promises to him. So, uh, there's a way in which David could pray those prayers that I don't think you and I can. And I think we need to be careful when we pray for, um, that type of judgment that we are praying uh, not for our own sake against our own personal enemies. The guy that cuts me off in traffic, we don't go drop in imprecatory prayers on him. Um, that my, my neighbor who parks his trailer on my yard again and kills the grass, we don't pray our imprecatory prayers upon him. But I do think it is valid when we see evil and wickedness going on from people who rule in the nations, tyrants, people who are starving their citizens, um, people who are killing babies in the womb and doing so with full knowledge. I do think there is a sense in which it is appropriate to pray that that evil would stop and that it would bring, mean judgment if that evil would stop. And we, that we would be happy with that. We would be content with that. Not that we necessarily desire to see individual people judged, but we desire to see those who do evil judged in a more generic sense. I think there's an appropriateness to that. So why then would David pray for the destruction of his enemies? And then when Saul gets destroyed, when Saul dies, he laments it. And this, I think, is a bit more of a personal look at, at David's heart. It is not inconsistent for me to desire the destruction of the judgment in a, in a holy and righteous sense of those who do harm to God and God's people. And then when that judgment comes, for it to have an emotional impact on me. I think that th those are two separate and distinct things, and I hope you can see that. Um, in one sense, we are asking God, judge your enemies. But then when that judgment comes, it strikes kind of close to home. And and it, it, it can make you sad. It can make you lament that. Um, David can pray that Absalom will be put down. But then when Absalom gets put down, it hurts to see that happen. And those are not inconsistent emotions. The desire to see God's righteousness vindicated and his name made great. And then when that happens, it means the destruction of the evildoer. And then all of a sudden, we oh, that hurts. Um, and so we can have conflicting emotions in the midst of that. How does it apply to how we should treat our enemies? We're called to treat our enemies with love and loving kindness and graciousness, gentleness, compassion, uh, letting our words be seasoned with salt, um, loving them and showing them love and sharing the gospel with them. That's how we should treat our enemies. Um, because those are our personal enemies. So the guy that cuts me off in traffic, I don't drop imprecatory prayers his way. Instead, I, um, I back up and I slow down and I let him in and I, I show that kind of grace and kindness to him, just like everybody does, right? That's how we all respond to that. And the people who persecute us, I think um, the book of First Peter, the book of First Peter answers that we need to to show them love and gentleness and submission and honor 
uh, to whom honor is due in in the way of of uh, attempting to demonstrate the love of Christ. That's how we handle our personal enemies, while at the same time it is okay for us to pray for um, God to vindicate His name, even if that means the judgment on His His enemies. All right. Uh, second question from the first and third grade Sunday school class: Was it wrong for David to have two wives? Uh, this was before Bathsheba, and yes, it was wrong. And Scripture records men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all having multiple wives. Um, David had multiple wives. A number of the judges in the book of Judges had multiple wives. Uh, that was not God's design. God's design was laid out in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So it was sinful and wrong for David to have those multiple wives, even before Bathsheba, even after Bathsheba. Um, that was not part of God's design. And the fact that God didn't strike them dead for that sin it was just a testimony of God's grace to them. Um, but it, but it, uh, it's not a pattern. It's something that's described in Scripture, not prescribed in Scripture. So it's not a pattern for us to follow. It's just uh, something that's recorded in Scripture that was true of those men, and it was sinful for them to have that, for them to do that. Um, Jenny had a third question. I'm going to save that for just a second. Was it wrong for David and Jonathan to lie to Saul when they devised the plan for testing whether Saul wanted to kill David? Because they told uh, Jonathan and David told Saul that. David had asked to spend the feast in Bethlehem with his family, and of course this revealed Saul's evil intention to, to murder and to kill David. So the question was, was it wrong for David and Jonathan to lie to Saul in that situation? And that ties us into a question that Dave Rich sent in, is it ever okay to lie? And this is a bit more of a complicated one, so I want to save that for a moment and deal instead with um, a couple other questions that Dave raised. And... Uh, so let's switch gears for a little bit. Dave asked the question, and he's, I don't know why he's asking some of these questions. Um, so Dave, how much time we got left? Okay, we got lots of time. So Dave asked the question, what's distinctive about Reformed theology versus Arminian theology? And what is hyper-Calvinism? And then related to this, if God is not the author of sin, then God cannot be said to be sovereign over all. Um... And so this is the Calvinist conundrum. How can God be sovereign over sin, cause sin in that sense, and yet not be responsible for it? How can God cause sin by allowing it and yet not be held accountable for it? And tying into that question is, does God have two wills? So let's deal with what are the, what is distinctive about Reformed theology as opposed to Arminian theology. And I think the best way to describe that or to handle that question would be to simply say that Reformed theology makes much of or rests upon um, a right understanding of the decrees of God and the work of God in eternity past to, to will, to guarantee, and to plan the redemption of man. Uh, there's a number of distinctives or differences between Reformed theology and Arminian theology, or you could call it Calvinism, Calvinism versus Arminianism, etc. I, I think most of the fundamental disagreement goes back to um, how sovereign do we believe that God is, and how much do we believe that the will of man has a role in the salvation of sinners. I would say that Reformed theology understands properly that... Um, that God is a triune God who worked in eternity past to guarantee, to, to plan redemption and then to guarantee the redemption of his people. 
And this is why scripture talks about God predestining some to salvation, to a redemption, to adoption of sons. Uh, it speaks of God electing a people, choosing a people, giving those people to his son, the son coming into the world to save those people and make an atonement for those people. And then the spirit of God regenerating those people, sealing those people, and then eventually resurrecting them at the end of time. Um, and all of those whom the Father has given to the Son. So we've talked about all of those doctrines in some capacity in the past, uh, both in adult Sunday school class, and of course, when we preach the doctrine of John, it's all the way through the Gospel of John. That eternal plan of God, whereby he, he plans the salvation of his people and secures their salvation everlastingly, that's all the way through the Gospel of John. It's, it's unavoidable in that Gospel. So that is the distinctive of Reformed theology, I think, the understanding of the sovereignty of God in all things and in salvation and uh, particularly in salvation. Um, Arminianism would make much of the will of man. Man's will in, in, um, in salvation and his response to the gospel. Uh, Reformed theology would make much out of the sovereignty of God and God's will in salvation and what that guarantees and what that affects. Related to that, what is hyper-Calvinism? And this is a good question because it ties into our understanding of Reformed theology. Uh, oftentimes, the minute someone mentions the term Calvinism, people automatically think in terms of what they think Calvinism is. So when people ask me the question, are you a Calvinist or is Kootenai Community Church a Calvinist church? Uh, I will respond to that with a question. I will say, you tell me what you think Calvinism is, and I'll tell you whether I am one or not. Because it is very rarely that anybody ever asks me that question, that they actually know the differences between Reformed theology and Arminian theology, or they even understand the origins of the debate or even the issues at hand. And most people, when they think of Calvinism, they're thinking in terms of hyper-Calvinism. So if, if I just come out and say, look, I'm a Calvinist, and people would say, oh, so you don't believe that God has any love for the non-elect, you don't believe in gospel preaching, you don't believe in sharing the gospel, you don't believe in sharing your faith, etc. And... uh that's not true at all. In fact, if you follow our preaching and the teaching at this church and our emphasis on the gospel and the ministry that we have here, then you understand that sharing the gospel is something we emphasize. We had a whole conference, a whole spring conference, uh, sorry, fall conference. We had a whole fall conference on how to share your faith with Andrew Rappaport and striving for eternity ministries to equip people to go out and do that. We have missionaries that we support. Of course, we believe in evangelism. So then what is the difference between, uh, so, so, well, let me back up. So people who think that Calvinism believes those things do not understand the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. So what is hyper-Calvinism? Hyper-Calvinism, to be clear, is not Calvinism taken to its logical conclusion. Hyper-Calvinism makes some of the very same errors as Arminian theology makes. So let me give you four uh, errors of hyper-Calvinism. And to go... To help you out on this, I would recommend this book, Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism by Ian Murray. Uh, this is a great little book about Spurgeon because he was neither an Arminian nor a Hyper-Calvinist. He was uh, accused by people in his day of being both. Uh, the hyper-Calvinist would ac accuse Spurgeon of being an Arminian because he preached the gospel, and the Arminians would be uh, accuse Spurgeon of being a hyper-Calvinist because he believed in election and predestination. And Spurgeon was neither an Arminian nor a hyper-Calvinist. So Ian, Murgy, Ian Murray, Spurgeon versus hyper-Calvinism. Now, if you're not familiar with the this, this book would be, it's, it's biographical, but it's also theological. So this book would be for those who are a little bit more familiar with the issues. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the four errors of hyper-Calvinism and explain how it would be different from what I would believe as 
when I would believe I'm a biblical Calvinist. Uh, here are the errors of hyper-Calvinism. First, number one, hyper-Calvinists deny the universality of gospel preaching. They deny that the gospel promises of forgiveness and eternal life should be presented to everyone. Now, they believe that the gospel, the facts of the gospel, that Christ came and died, that he rose again and did this to save sinners— they would say that those facts of the gospel should be proclaimed to everyone. But the promises of the gospel, that you can have eternal life, that you can have your sins forgiven, that Christ died for you, that those promises of the gospel should only be preached to the elect. So they would say that the command or the promise that if you trust Christ, he will give you eternal life, that should only be addressed to elect sinners. And they would say that no appeal at all should be made to the non-elect, to sinners, to believe the gospel. Because they would say that if the atonement of Christ is particular, that is, that it is for his people and not a payment for sins for the whole world, and if the election of the, of the Father is particular, in that he chose some and not all, and if the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is particular, that is, he doesn't regenerate everybody, he regenerates some, but not all, Therefore, the preaching of the gospel should be particular, that we only give the promises of the gospel out to those who are the elect. So there needs to be some sort of, and this was Spurgeon's objection to hyper-Calvinism, that there needs to be, according to hyper-Calvinists, there needs to be some sort of an internal examination of the sinner to see if he is drawn or inclined or feels like he should come to God, or if God is at work in his heart, some sort of an inward look in order to determine all of that before you can present to them the promises of the gospel. So hyper-Calvinism denies the universality of gospel preaching. And obviously, I'm not a hyper-Calvinist by that measure, because I get up and I would preach the gospel to anyone. I have told sinners, even though there are people there um, that you have no idea what, what's going on in their hearts, uh, you can proclaim the gospel to them and declare to them that they must repent, and if they do and believe Christ, that they shall be saved. So hyper-Calvinism denies the universality of presenting the gospel promises to all men. They would say it only should be presented to the elect or those who are coming to faith in Christ or who have been regenerated and then are seeking out um, God's forgiveness. Second, hyper-Calvinists would deny the warrant of faith, or what uh, this is what Spurgeon called the warrant of faith. They would say that um, as a Calvinist or uh, as a gospel preacher, I would say we call all men. We declare to all men everywhere that they should repent and believe on Christ. We preach the gospel to all of creation. We, we don't discriminate, try and discriminate between the elect and the non-elect when it comes to, uh, to, to imploring them to place their faith in Jesus Christ. So a hyper-Calvinist would say you cannot call the non-elect to faith in Christ because they don't have the ability to place faith in Christ. Therefore, until you discern whether or not they're elect, whether or not they've been regenerated and the work of the Spirit of God is going on in their heart, you can't tell them to place their faith in Christ. You can't, you can't tell a non-elect person who doesn't have the ability to believe savingly on Christ. You can't tell them to place their faith in Christ. So they would say that we would err. The hyper-Calvinist would say we err if we present the, the demand for faith to all men without distinction. Um, and so where, where the one says you can't, the first error, remember, was you can't present the promises of the gospel, forgiveness and eternal life to all men. This would say you can't call upon all men to repent and believe because they're not able to do that. And so to say that, 
to say to a non-elect person that they are called to believe the gospel, to the hyper-Calvinist, that would be a falsehood. You can't say that to them because they're not called to believe the gospel because they're not elect. Um, a Calvinist would say, or a Biblicist would say, that all men are called to faith and to believe, and that we don't need to know the extent of the atonement in order to call men to believe upon it. Um, the extent of the atonement for whom Christ died, though we may say it is particular, I don't need to know that this individual person is among the elect and included in the atonement for me to tell them that they must place faith in Christ. And I don't think that us understanding that is necessary for us to present the gospel. And see, now, now Arminians, here's where Arminians and hyper-Calvinists would make the same mistake. The Arminian would say, all men have to be included in the atonement. Otherwise, we can't present the gospel to all men. So if we're called to present the gospel to all men, all men must be included in the atonement. In other words, we have to know the extent of the atonement in order to present the gospel to all men. We have to know that it is for all men. The hyper-Calvinist makes the same error as the Arminian. They would say you have to, you can only present the gospel to those who are included in the atonement. And so if somebody is not included in the atonement, we can't present the gospel to them. We can't call upon them to believe. The error is the same on both sides. Whereas a, a biblicist, a Calvinist, biblically, we would say, I don't need to know that somebody is included in the atonement in order to tell them you must place faith in Christ. And so we can present, therefore, the gospel, the promises of the gospel, and the demands of the gospel to any and all men without distinguishing it between them. You know, Spurgeon's old adage that I, um, God isn't stamped an E on the chest or the back of of sinners to tell me whether they're not elect or not, so therefore I preach the gospel to all men. That statement was because of the er this error of hyper-Calvinism. The third error, so first, a denial of the universality of present presenting the promises of the gospel. Second, a denial that we present the warrant of faith to the non-elect. And third, uh, hyper-Calvinists would deny human responsibility. They would say sinners are not required to do what they are not able to do. And therefore, since sinners are not able to believe upon Christ, they are not required to do so. So this denies that the unbeliever is damned for his unbelief or his rejection. So it's a denial of human responsibility. And I've said before, uh, Arminian denies the sovereignty of God, and hyper-Calvinist denies the responsibility of man. And that's where this comes from. A hyper-Calvinist denies that man is responsible to do that which they are unable to do. And I would say that in the fall, man lost his ability, but not his responsibility that the sinner is still responsible to believe, and if he does not, he will be damned, not because he is not elect, not because Christ has not died for him. He will be damned because he refused to believe. It is his unbelief that damns the sinner. Um, and, and this element of hyper-Calvinism would say that the sinner is not damned for their unbelief. They're damned because God has not chosen them, and that their unbelief is not something that, that uh, warrants hell. Um, yeah, I think that's it. So that's the third one. It's the universality of gospel preaching, warrant of faith. Uh, the third one is their human responsibility. And the fourth one would be the love of God. A hyper-Calvinist would say that God has no desire at all for the salvation of the non-elect, that God has no love at all for the salvation or for the, for the non-elect, um, that no man has a right to trust. This is how Ian Murray in, in that book, Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism, Ian Murray would say that no man has a right to trust in a loving God until he has some personal evidence that he is one of the chosen ones. Um, whereas I believe that God loves all men, but I don't believe that all love of God is equal and the same. Um, I believe biblically that God does have a love for the non-elect, but it is not a redeeming and a saving love. It's not the love that Christ has for his bride, the church, that caused him to come here and to give his life in her stead 
so that he may give his bride eternal life and make her one with him. Uh, that type of love is a different kind of love. It's a redeeming love, not a general love. I, I think that even the general love that God that God has for the wicked and for sinners is a love that is beyond our ability to comprehend or to plumb the depths of. But it does not move him to save everybody or to even try and save everybody. So here again, the Arminian and the Calvinist makes the same mistake. The Arminian and the Calvinist both make the mistake of believing that there's only one love in God and not multiple ways or expressions or kinds of love in God. So the hyper-Calvinist would look at the love of God in Scripture, and he would say every reference to the love of God in Scripture is limited to the elect. The Arminian would look at the love of God in Scripture and say every reference to the love of God in Scripture it describes God the love that God has for all men. He loves all men equally, therefore he's trying to save all men equally. And the hyper-Calvinist on the other side saying, no, every reference to the love of God, there's only one love that God has, and it's only a specific and redeeming love. And so if you stand in the middle between the hyper-Calvinist and the Arminian, then you would have to say, like me, that no, God has the right to love different people in different ways. Um, he loves the sinner with one love. He loves his bride, his people with another love. His, his sheep are separate and distinct in his plan. Um, both the hyper-Calvinist and the Calvinist, sorry, the hyper-Calvinist and the Arminian, both would, they, they make the same error in saying that, that um, they would deny to God the right to love in the same way that you and I love. I love my neighbor with a different love than I love the people who are here in our church. Um, I love the people who are here in our church with a different love than I love my wife. I don't love all women equally. I don't love all people equally. I have different affection for my children than I do for your children. It doesn't mean I don't love your children. It means that I love my children in a different way, to a different degree, with different expressions than I love your children. Or I love my wife with a different degree in a different way, with different expressions than I love your wife. If you would, if, I would be a horrible person. You would rightly charge me with horrible crimes if I loved all women equally, if I loved all women the same way that I love my wife. I would either be neglecting my wife horribly, or I would be doing inappropriate things with every woman that I've found on the other hand. So we make distinctions in, in our loves, the way that we love, the objects of our love, the expressions of our love, and God does the same thing. The hyper-Calvinist denies that, and the Arminian denies that. So those are the errors of hyper-Calvinism. That was a long one. Where are we at? 10 after 10? I give you permission to take a sip of your coffee as you're sitting on your couch watching this in your pajamas. Uh, what is hyper-Calvinism? Oh, so that's related to that. Um, oh, we're going to deal with, is it ever okay to lie? Um, all right, so let's let's wrap up the issue of the sovereignty of God. Is If God is not the author of sin, then he cannot be said to be sovereign over all things. If he doesn't at least in some sense cause sin, and something is caused without him being sovereign over it, how would you respond to this? Um, and, and does God have two wills? Um, we would say that God is not the author of sin in the sense that he is morally culpable or morally responsible for it, but he is sovereign over sin. He decreed that sin would be allowed into his creation, and he decreed that he would use even sin and sinfulness in a sinless way to accomplish his eternal purposes for his own glory and for the good of his people. So God allows sin and causes it in the sense that he has decreed that sin enter a good creation. And he has decreed that he will redeem sinners. And he has decreed, at least in allowing sense, 
all things that come to pass. He actively decrees that these things should be, but he does so with a holy and untouchably holy will. So God intends for sin to happen, but he intends it for good. And he uses sin sinlessly. I think that that's the best way of saying that. So um, he is still sovereign over it uh, because nothing happens without him allowing it to happen. There's, there's no there's no sin that takes place that God says, well, I can't do anything about it. It's out of my hands. Uh, it's just sort of men doing their own thing. Um, God is sovereign over it in that he controls it. There's nothing renegade. There's nothing outside of his of his control or of his um, of his so- sovereign hand. So I hope that answers that. Does God have two wills? Um, we know that he has a secret will that he has not revealed to us. And we know that he has a revealed will that he has revealed to us. So the will that you would be holy and righteous without blame before him, he has willed that. He is bringing that to pass. Uh, his will that you abstain from sexual immorality, that is a, a stated and decreed will that he has not seen to sit necessarily to bring to pass because there are people who violate that will of God. And then there is the secret will that he is working out that he has not revealed to us all the details of that secret will. So does God have two wills? He has multiple wills, some of which he has determined that he will bring to pass sovereignly and some of which he has determined he will not bring to pass or not necessarily ensure the accomplishment of that will. All right. Oh, where are we at for subjects here? Um, oh, we're going to get to, does, is it ever okay to lie? Hold on. And I'm out of coffee. So during the break, I'm going to get some coffee. So Dave asked, um, he brought up two Bible contradictions. This was a good one. Um, both of that, both of these were actually really good. And I had to do a little bit of research to find out the answers to these. So I'm glad I wasn't asked this on the fly. Uh, Dave writes, how long was the famine option following David's census? Was it seven years of famine, as it says in 2 Samuel 24, 13? Or was it three years, as it says in 1 Chronicles 21, 11 through 12? One of them must be wrong, so the Bible is wrong. So, you remember the story? It's... Uh, Toward the end of David's life, he's, he calls for a census, and uh, I think it was, was it Joab that tried to talk him out of it. Somebody tried to talk him out of it. One of his advisors said, this is not a good thing, and David said, do it. So he went and did it, and then God struck the nation, judged the nation for David um, David asking for a census from taking a census. So First Chronicles, let me read you the passages so we know what we're talking about. First Chronicles 21, 11 through 12 says... Uh, well, back into verse 9, the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. This is the three judgments that David got to choose between. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying through it all the territory of Israel. Consider what I shall answer. I shall return to him who sent me. So that's First Chronicles 21. And then Second Samuel 24, 13. Uh, David's seer came saying, go to speak to David. This is verse 12. Thus the Lord says, I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, 
which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in the land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or three days pestilence in your land? Consider what I'll answer. So those were the three options. Now in First Chronicles 21, it does say three years of famine that he was offered. And in Second Samuel 24, it does say seven years of famine that he was offered. So is that a contradiction? Um, the best way, to, well, not the best way, the only way and the way to answer this is to understand that each author is recording the same events from a bit of a different perspective. So here is the answer to that conundrum. It's actually in a much wider context. Now, first of all, if you have seven years of famine, you have to have inside of that seven, how many? You have to have three. You have to have three years of famine and plus four more. So if, if, if Gad offered to David seven years of famine in one account and three years of famine in another account, the three years would be included in the seven. But the contradiction makes us assume or is asking us to assume that the three and the seven are contradictory rather than one being included in the other. And the one being included in the other is actually the answer to this alleged contradiction. So here's the broader context. In First Chronicles chapter 21, um, no, where is it? Where's it? First Samuel. It's First Samuel 21. It's First Samuel 21 where it records, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years after year, uh, year after year, for three years, year after year. So in the broader context of the second Samuel 24 passage that talks about them being, um, gotta flip back here. It talks about there being three years. In the broader context of that, the author notes that there had already been a famine for three years. So then when David is confronted with, to choose his judgment, Gad asks him in 2 Samuel, where it's already been noted there had been three years of famine year after year. Gad now asks David, you want three years of famine? In the First Chronicles passage, is it First Chronicles? Yeah, First Chronicles passage. He records it as Gad asking for seven years, which means if you take the three years that had already been a famine for three years and you add three years to that, I know there's only six, hold on, you had three years to that, three years had already been a famine, and then three more years would have made for six years in the first, in the second Samuel passage. In the first Chronicles passage, Gad just asks about seven years. Now, what the, what the author of second, first Chronicles is trying to capture is the total length of what that famine would have been over the course of the three years of famine that had already been, as well as three more years of famine. So in First Chronicles, it's seven years total. In Second Samuel, it's three years added to the first three years that had already had a famine. You say, but then there's where's the other one year? You still got one year that you haven't accounted for. Remember that Israel was not to plant or to sow or to gather for one year out of every seven. It was the Sabbath year that they were not to plant in the in the in the land. They were supposed to save up for six years, and then on the seventh year they were to let let everything be fallow and to to not plant for that seventh year uh, to give the land a rest, a Sabbath rest. So that would be the other year. If you had six and you would have seven somewhere either in the middle of that or at the end of that or at the beginning of that, um, that seventh year would have been in there. That one year, the seventh year would have been in that seven years. So the simple answer to that is that in First Chronicles, I say simple, but obviously it's more complicated than that. 
in the first Chronicles passage, we're dealing with the totality of what that entire famine would have looked like by adding the three years the second Samuel mentions to it. You had three years of famine. David is being asked for another year of famine. It's possible that at the beginning of that year or at the or the beginning of that first three years or the end of that first three years, that there would have been somewhere in there that Sabbath year, which would have made it a total of seven years. So in the second Samuel passage, David is simply being asked, how many of the, how many more years of famine do you want? God's going to add three years to that. You're, you, if you choose three years of famine, you're going to end up with seven years total of famine because there had already been three that had passed. That's the answer to that alleged contradiction. Um, which sort of vanishes when you understand the context and what was going on in the history there. Where did I come up with that? Did I make all of that up? No. It's my opportunity to plug another book. This book here, that's where I got this today. I just pulled this off my shelf this morning while I was sitting here preparing for adult Sunday school class. Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason by Jason Lyle. If you were here for the conference that he had, that's where I picked this book up. There's a whole bunch of alleged Bible contradictions in there that shows you the logical fallacy that leads to the Bible contradiction. And, uh, and then describes the, um, the answer to it. So that's where the answer to that was found. I got that out of Jason Lyle's book. It's a good one. I recommend it to you if you don't have it. I think it's the best, probably the best, most concise, easily readable, um, accessible book on Bible contradictions that I've ever seen. I got a number of them up on my shelf. Uh, you can't quite see them in the picture there, but anyway. Um, and then Dave asked this question. Oh, you know what? We are past our adult Sunday school time. Dave asked the question, is it always, is it ever okay to lie? Uh, I'll have to put that off till next Sunday. Um, what other, do we have any questions come up in chat channel? I haven't been watching that because I've been studying too much here and talking too much. Um, another problem that Dave raised was rabbits don't chew the cud, so the Bible is wrong. And that comes from Leviticus 11, where the list of clean and unclean animals, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud, or, yeah, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrix, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, or the rabbit, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it's unclean to you. Leviticus 11, and then a similar thing in Deuteronomy 14, verse 7. Um, here's the, okay, let me give you the solution to it. I'm reading this off of Answers in Genesis website. This is fascinating. In modern scientific classification, animals that chew the cud are called ruminants. Cattle, sheep, deer, giraffes, and camels are ruminants. Ruminants have four stomach compartments. They swallow their food into one stomach compartment where food is partially digested. Then the food is regurgitated back into the mouth, chewed again, and swallowed into a different stomach compartment. This process is called rumination. Uh, so is the Bible wrong? After all, rabbits are not ruminants. They do not have four compartment stomachs, so how can they chew the cud? Peter just walked in. Oh, three questions posted in the chat for you. I summarized them. Oh, okay. Um, the solution. Obviously, rabbits don't have the same digestive anatomy of the modern ruminants. However, the, it des to describe rabbits as chewing the cud is not incorrect. Simply stated, it's not reasonable to accuse a 35-year-old year old document of an error because it does not adhere to modern man-made classification systems. Consider what rabbits do. And then the answers in Genesis article goes on to describe um, the fecal cycle of ram rabbits and pellets and the way they digest and have hard droppings and soft droppings, etc. I'm not going to get into all of that as fun as that may be. 
But they ask the question, does the rabbit actually chew the cud after describing the rabbit's digestive system? Here's the, here's the answer. The Hebrew word translated chew is the word Allah, with not Allah as in like Islamic Allah, but Allah. With any attempt to translate one language to another, it is understood that there is often more than one meaning for a given word. A cursory glance at the Hebrew lexicon reveals that Allah can mean to go up, to ascend, to climb, to go up into, out of place, to depart, to rise up, to cause to ascend, to bring up from among others. Here, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it carries the implication of moving something from one place to another. So the phrase translated into English as chew the cud literally means something on the order of eats that which is brought forth again. And of course, that perfectly fits the digestive system of a hare or a rabbit, as the previous portion of the article uh, describes. And uh, I'll try and drop that into the chat here in just a second before I quit this. Uh, also, most reference material on rabbit digestion says that the pellet is swallowed whole and found intact in the rabbit's stomach. However, experts have observed that rabbits keep the cetrotroph, I don't know what that means, in the mouth for a time before swallowing. So even though the mucin membrane covering the cetrotrope is not broken, the rabbit is able to knead it with its mouth before swallowing, possibly to enhance the process of redigestion. So is the Bible an error here? No, it's not. Rabbits re-ingest partially digested foods, as do modern ruminants. This, this they do without the aid of multiple stomach compartments. So rabbits do actually chew the cud in the sense that the Bible is describing there as it was describing a certain type of process of eating. All right. I'll see if I can drop that into the, the Twitch channel here. I'm going to do an ask. Okay, got it. All right, there's the link to the Answers in Genesis article there at the end. Um, all right, so in the chat channel, we had three questions. Where do I find these? Um, what is Pastor Jim's thought on the coronavirus and put it in the Bible? Um, the Bible allows for viruses. That's the simple answer to that. It's part of a fallen creation. Um, and talk a little bit about it in the worship services to follow here as we address that at the beginning of the worship service. I'm going to talk a little bit about why we cancel church and, and kind of my thoughts on it. Um, if the devil knows he's fighting a losing battle, why do you think he continues? Uh, pride. Um, ever, ever been engaged in doing something you know, you just, you're fighting a losing battle, but you never want to give up just because you just, your pride won't let you. Uh, not only that, because he is at war with God and, and God, uh, uh, I think that there's an element of self-deception to the enemy, um, where he is deceiving himself into thinking that he can honest. I mean, that's how his rebellion started was deceiving himself into thinking that he had a shot at overthrowing God's sovereignty and, and taking God's throne away from him. I want to be like the most high, he said. Uh, so that's self-deception there. Um, what verses talk about the different kinds of love that God has for different people? Well, we do have references to God loving the world, John 3.16. We have references to God loving men in a generic sense. Um, i trying to think of something just right off the top of my head. The specific references that speak of his love for his people, you have it in the Gospel of John where he talks about his love for his sheep, his love for his people, uh, his love for those for whom he died in John 6, John 10, John 17. Um, that special love of God. John, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of Christ's love for his bride, the church, where his bride, the church, is distinguished from those who are not his bride. Uh, that special kind of redeeming love is described there. Um, and without going into some more detail there, I'd have to, I'd have to say, I, those are the ones I can just think of off the top of my head as I'm trying to rattle through some of these questions. 
Um, yeah, I can't, I don't see any other ones there. I was asked a question right at the very beginning that I thought was an interesting one. Um, oh, what is your favorite fiction book? Let me end with that one. I don't read fiction. Um, I think the last fiction I read was probably 20, 20 years ago minimum. Um, no. I read a fiction book recently. I can't remember what it was. I suffered through it for some reason. I don't read fiction. I, I'm not a fiction reader. I don't enjoy fiction. Um, I think my attention span is too short for fiction. Uh, I like to read. If I'm going to spend time reading, I want to learn something. I want to figure something out. I want to, I want to grow in some way. So I, I don't, um, I just don't have time to read fiction and I don't do it. It's not a, a love or a passion for me. Fiction, science fiction. I enjoy biographies. I read biographies because I'm learning about actually people that that things happen to, but the biography has to, has to give me information quickly. If I'm going to, if it's going to, I'm going to follow it. Uh, I find that with fiction, when I'm start to read fiction, I've tried it. Um, I read some fiction back in high school. I read, uh, this present darkness, no, uh, sorry, Bible college, this present darkness and piercing the darkness. I read another Frank Peretti book. He was my favorite author there for a while. And then I stopped reading fiction, started reading theology and other books, biographies and stuff like that. And I just have never, never picked it back up. History is, history and real life and real things are too interesting to me for me to get caught up in fiction. So I, I just don't enjoy it. I know that's just odd to people. I, I got friends, I got some friends in Bible college who think I'm just crazy for not loving fiction, but I just don't. I sit down to read a fiction book and I, you know, read the first paragraph and it talks about the helicopter coming in over top of the mountains and settling upon the field and the grass blowing away and the flowers and the sunset and the rain and the light mist and the evening and the coolness of the breeze and describes all of that. And my mind is off in a hundred other places and I just don't have the attention span to sit there and try and read and to try and focus on long detailed descriptions of things. I've heard Louis L'Amour. I've never even read a Louis L'Amour book, but I've heard it's horrible for that very reason. Far too descriptive. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.